Hello, and welcome to another episode. This is episode three of our series on debunked scientific theories. Today's theory is vitalism. Vitalism was the belief that organisms are fundamentally different from non-living entities and that living organisms contain some non-physical element or are governed by fundamentally different principles than non-living things. The essence of life was imagined to be something invisible, intangible, or perhaps supernatural as opposed to something corporeal or of the body itself. Believers in vitalism closer to modern day thought perhaps a yet undiscovered force-powered life, something entirely different from normal chemistry or physics. Throughout most of this episode, I will be referring to the soul, because that was what virtually all philosophers credited vitalism to, but this is not a podcast about spirits or the afterlife. Vitalism has also been referred to as the vital spark, the spirit, the essence of life, and more. Unlike the previous debunked scientific theories, vitalism was not primarily invented after the scientific revolution. It has its roots in Greek philosophy. So it is not so much a product of science, but it was believed by some of the most influential philosophers in history who surely were in the minds of the great early scientists. And as you will see, vitalism was being experimented on until the early 1900s. All right, let's get started. Before we begin today's episode, I want to tell you that if you like this content and you want to support me, you can check me out on YouTube, Instagram, and TikTok. Just search Planet Peterson on those platforms. You can also find links to my Patreon, Venmo, and more by going to my YouTube channel and clicking the link in the banner that says support the channel. Okay, back to the episode. Keep in mind that for much of this episode, you're going to hear me talk about souls. While you might think this isn't about science, it is in a way. The soul was what these characters imagined powered life and made it work. And early true scientists were inspired by these ideas and sometimes shared those thoughts. So when you hear the soul is the essence of the living thing, just remember that's their version of the mitochondria is the powerhouse of the cell. We begin with Plato. According to Plato, all living things must have souls because we move internally. A rock can only move if external forces are applied to it but a person moves by internally applied forces. The soul was the essence of a person and determined how we behave, and it was split into three parts. Reason, or logos, resided in the head and guided reason and regulated some other bodily activities. The spirit, or thymos, was located near the chest and was associated with ego, glory, and honor. It's such a common phrase that you've probably never thought about it, but just think about how it makes no literal sense at all to put your heart into something or to give your heart to something. Phrases like that are legacies of ancient ideas. The third part of the soul was the appetite or eros. This was located in the stomach and was related to our passions and desires. While we normally say the heart desires, we still talk about gut feelings or going with our gut. Plato did not write essays, write logical arguments in a formal outline, or do experiments. Plato wrote dialogues. These were almost certainly fictional events. They are conversations between Socrates and other people, who probably existed, but the actual conversations never occurred. Most of Plato's thoughts about the soul come from the dialogue Phaedrus. Here's the gist of it. Souls have wings, live in heaven, ride chariots around, eventually lose their wings, get tired, fall to earth, enter living bodies, then after around 10,000 years of reincarnations, go back to heaven. Oh, yeah, Plato believed in reincarnation. Do the chariots and horses and wings serve only as metaphors for reason, morality, passions, righteousness, and more? 
Or did he really think a soul was a nebulous thing that rode a chariot? It's kind of impossible to tell, but the details of what Plato's souls are aren't necessarily that important. What is important is why he thinks souls must exist. The mere fact that we think and know, or are convinced we know, that we exist, and that our movement is internally driven, makes a soul necessary to Plato. The details would have to wait until later. Plato's most famous student was Aristotle. Aristotle's most famous student was Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great had no students. Not really sure where that was supposed to take us, but anyways. Aristotle and Plato did not see eye to eye on everything. Plato is more spiritual and mystic, Aristotle more concrete and down to earth. This is delightfully depicted in their stances in the painting The School of Athens by Raphael, the Red Ninja Turtle. Aristotle wrote a treatise titled On the Soul around the year 350 BCE. Aristotle believed there are three souls, the rational, sensitive, and vegetative soul. Only humans possess all three souls. Animals possess the vegetative and sensitive souls, while plants only have the vegetative soul. He had this belief that sperm had a soul, and that's where a living thing inherits its soul from. Aristotle thought that the soul was the essence of a living thing, not a substance contained within it. This reminds me of a quote from my religious days. You don't have a soul, you are a soul. You have a body. Because the soul is the essence of a living thing, it cannot reincarnate into other living beings, in stark contrast to Plato's soul. Looking at the arguments between Aristotle and Plato is hilarious to me, because it's like a DC comic nerd and a Marvel comic nerd vigorously debating who would win in a fight, Superman or the Incredible Hulk. The questions never get answered, because in the end, we're talking about things that aren't real. The first not-a-scientist, but pretty good for his time, I want to talk about is Galen. Galen lived in modern-day Turkey in the 2nd century. He was one of the most accomplished medical researchers from antiquity, whose only considerable rival is Hippocrates. The vast majority of Galen's discoveries were in anatomy. For example, he proved the vessels carry blood, when many people at the time thought they carried air. One of his rather atrocious but compelling discoveries was the function of certain nerves. He would gut a live pig, then sever its laryngeal nerve, which in mammals is connected to the larynx or voice box. The pig would then stop squealing, but certainly not stop suffering. While there are some impressive anatomical discoveries, his speculations on how body parts work, which we call physiology, were way off. He attributed functions to the wrong organ, failed to recognize all of the functions an organ has, and often came up with a function that simply doesn't exist. Those non-existent functions stemmed from Galen's theory of vitalism. Galen appeared to have been most influenced by Plato. Galen thought the soul was accumulated by the body through the air throughout life. In that way, the soul is not of the body, unlike Aristotle's idea of the soul being the essence of a living thing, and specific to the creature. This theory of pneuma, as it was called by him, held that the vital essence, pneuma, entered the body through the lungs, combined with blood, and then formed three spirits within our bodies. The natural spirit resided in the liver, where it controlled nutrition and metabolism. The vital spirit resided in the heart and regulated blood flow and body temperature. The hypothalamus regulates body temperature, in case you wanted to know, but the heart does pump blood. Finally, the animal spirit resided in the brain, where it controlled sensory perception and movement. Galen's animal spirit is analogous to Aristotle's rational soul, which he thought existed in the heart. This was the best we could do for several millennia. It didn't get much better in the next phase. 
The medieval period, roughly 476 to the year 1400, is called the Dark Ages for a reason. Even the Renaissance was mostly a celebration and reinvigoration of old ideas, with little interest in expanding upon them. Sort of like Make America Great Again, but with souls and the worst imaginable medical advice. So we must teleport in time from Galen to René Descartes. Descartes, born 1596, died 1650, was so influential that I can't even do a bio on him because it would be longer than the entire Aristotle bit. So I will just stick with his ideas on vitalism. Descartes believed that living things, including humans, operated purely by mechanical principles. This is a dramatic departure from any idea we've heard so far. Descartes dared to be reductionist. Everything happens because of mechanical principles. Why should living things, which are physical objects, be any different? But Descartes wasn't so purely a materialist after all. He denied that animals had the capacity for reason, intelligence, or to even feel pain. Or more accurately, I think he thought they could feel pain, but they could not suffer. So then why could we do those things? Because humans, Descartes said, possess a soul. Yeah. Descartes wrote a treatise in 1649 titled The Passions of the Soul. Descartes wrote that the soul is sensitive to what are called animal spirits. Animal spirits are composed of light and fluids that course through our blood, muscles, and brains. Animal spirits don't exist, but an interpretation of Descartes' writing tells us he was talking about what we would today call instincts. Instincts aren't discrete things, but Descartes writes about how the soul reacts to animal spirits and its responses are what dictate human behavior. At long last, we reach the true scientific age. While it's fun to imagine that daring, charismatic, trailblazing scientists who got no respect in their lifetimes, but whose work later completely changed the world, initiating a paradigm shift, rescued us from the blinders that vitalism put on us, that's not how it went. Instead, vitalism was slowly eroded from scientific consensus. Scientists were dubious about a vital force, even if they hadn't ruled it out yet, for the same reason they are dubious about magic or mind reading. It's totally inconsistent with everything we know about the natural world, which was the leap Descartes never could make. The man who is probably most responsible for ushering in the end of vitalism is John Dalton, who we also met in the last episode titled The Atom. Dalton's atomic theory basically invented modern chemistry. His theory states that, among other things, atoms and elements combine in chemical reactions to become new substances. But crucially, the reactions are reversible. This means that you can take a finite number of ingredients and transform them into unlimited numbers of new substances. Take the human body. 96% of the human body is composed of only four elements, hydrogen, carbon, oxygen, and nitrogen, which come together to form the many different molecules of life. This made the stuff of life far less mysterious, which meant there probably weren't any mysterious forces responsible for life's existence. Critics, that is to say proponents of vitalism, argued that life was different because the molecules of life could not be transformed back into simpler substances, and that only life can create the molecules associated with life. This just flat out isn't true, but at the time, there were virtually no technologies that could create those kinds of molecules, or find them in nature, or reverse engineer a molecule. However, in 1828, Frederick Wohler synthesized urea from entirely inorganic sources, disproving this claim. Urea, for the record, is a nitrogenous compound produced as a waste product of cellular metabolism. You urinate it out, but it's also found in your sweat. 
One of the most well-known vitalist scientists was Karl Riechenbach, born 1788, died 1869. Riechenbach was a German chemist, whose name I am probably mispronouncing, and believed there may be a vital force that he called the Odic Force, named after Odin. Riechenbach thought that electricity, magnetism, and heat combine into one force that all living things emanate. At this time, we did not have good scientific models of heat. Many people believed there was a fluid called caloric that flows from hot objects to cold objects, and electricity and magnetism were known, but we had not yet discovered that they were essentially part of the same force, electromagnetism. So Riechenbach's idea wasn't all that harebrained, but he did believe that you could see the odic force emanating from someone in total darkness. But you had to spend hours in total darkness adjusting to the dimness, and even then only certain people could see it. I'm guessing he claimed to be one of those people. A contemporary German scientist, physicist Johann Friedrich Blumenbach, was more skeptical of the vital force. Blumenbach took hydras, which are simple freshwater organisms related to jellyfish. They look a bit like elongated, simple anemones. Hydras, being very simple, can do things that complex organisms cannot. If you cut up a hydra, each piece can potentially reform into a functional organism. Starfish have this ability too. Contrary to what you may have heard, worms do not have this ability. If you cut a worm in half, one half can continue living, but the other does not. Blumenbach attributed the Hydra's regenerative abilities to some formative drive. But he wasn't saying the formative drive is a thing. It's a metaphor, a placeholder for something we don't yet understand. This is similar to when Einstein, upon being asked about the weirdness of quantum physics, said, God does not play dice with the universe. Einstein didn't believe in God. He was an atheist. God simply stood for something not yet understood. Blumenbach never discovered how hydras are able to regenerate, but he assumed the answer would be related to known natural laws. In his own words, vitalism, quote, explains nothing, end quote. And that's been the theme so far. Vitalism is an answer that comes out of an argument from incredulity. I don't know how X works, so therefore it must be because of Y. There are no explanations of how why vitalism works, just a series of untestable hypotheticals about some of the attributes of souls and essences and animal spirits. The hero of our first episode of Debunked Scientific Theories, Spontaneous Generation, was Louis Pasteur. I was surprised to learn in researching for this episode that Pasteur believed in some sort of vitalism. Pasteur thought that fermentation was the product of vitalism. Fermentation is the process we use to make beer, wine, cheese, sauerkraut, and what makes our muscles ache during exercise. Competing scientists at the time showed unequivocally that fermentation is carried out by enzymes within cells. But I think we should pause here. I'm not sure if fermentation can happen in nature apart from life or not. I didn't find any information that says it can. So if fermentation can only happen in living things, isn't that vitalism? No. Remember the original premise of vitalism, that living organisms contain some non-physical element or are governed by fundamentally different principles than non-living things. If life happens because of chemical reactions, then it's not a vital force. It's the same force that makes baking soda and vinegar react, mainly reducing energy and maximizing entropy. Life is just its own kind of chemistry. It's not a completely different force governed by different principles. Life is chemistry. The last attempt to prove a vital force came from Hans Driesch, a German biologist born 1867, died 1941. 
For sexually reproducing organisms, life begins when a sperm fertilizes an egg. At one point in all our lives, we were a single cell. Eventually, that cell divides and becomes two identical cells. Hans would observe this happening in sea urchin embryos, and then carefully split the two cells apart, separating them. What happened was each cell produced two fully functional sea urchins. This was strong supporting evidence of vitalism if we assume some things that aren't true. If we assume the vital force is an external force, like Galen did, and any internal force requires the cells to communicate with each other, then a split embryo producing two offsprings appears to support that because any internal force would be split, making the two cells incomplete in an important way. In reality, cellular function is almost entirely internal, but does not require cell-to-cell -cell communication because it is mediated through DNA and gene expression. Each cell from the split embryo has identical DNA, and so they have no problem developing. This is exactly how monozygotic twins develop. The fertilized egg divides, but then separates for some reason. Now it is true that cells do communicate with each other, and this is a critical factor in the development of the embryo later on. But at the two cell stage, those factors haven't taken effect yet. Interestingly, I never heard any argument that limb generation, which is seen in many organisms, is evidence of a vital force, but that would have made an excellent argument. But in the end, vitalism was a force that was never found. Life gradually became less and less mysterious. The discoveries of the chemical pathways and molecules involved in photosynthesis, the Krebs cycle, DNA and gene expression demonstrated that life is chemistry. A wonderful, unique, self-perpetuating chemistry, but just chemistry. More recent discoveries have shown us that amino acids can be found in nature independent of life. They've been found in meteorites. The molecules or their precursors associated with the Krebs cycle the metabolic pathway for all life on Earth, have been found near hydrothermal vents in the bottom of the oceans. This gives us confidence that life arose naturally on Earth from non-living chemical systems. Some people hate this part of science. They say it cheapens existence or cheapens life, that it's too reductionist. I think that being ignorant cheapens existence. Nobody is satisfied with unanswered questions. But why should some answers be taboo or which they were never learned? Would being as dumb as a rock, literally incapable of learning, be preferable? I like to think the answer is no. Thanks for listening.